Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to another great episode of our show. I'm Ellen Trackman and here with my sister and business partner, Jennifer White. Yay. Good morning, Jen. Um, so I feel like this episode's really good about someone taking their experience and becoming this great mentor for others. And that's actually how we learned of her, where someone close to us was like, hey, this woman really mentored me and was an amazing resource. So Jen, my question for you of the day is, have you had that great mentor in your life? Oh, wow. I mean, I have so many incredible people that I look up to. I I feel like more than one mentor, I I spend a lot of time trying really hard to surround myself with much smarter than me people <laughs> and to sit back and shut my mouth and absorb. Oh, I have um, that by default, so I I you know, I think that our um our stepmom, Diana Webb, is one of like the strongest women I know. So like a lot of the time when I'm walking into a situation, I will like sit back and be like, Hey, what, what would Diana do in this moment? Like, especially if I'm like oh. fearful of something, um, <laughs> I, you know, cause that's what she has such incredible bravado about everything in life. Um, so in, in that way I, I have, you know, that, that mentor there, I mean, I, everywhere I go, I just try really hard to sit back, absorb and, and surround myself with incredible people. So not a specific one, Um, So I thought it was interesting. The other night I was at this uh, event where they had a panel of women who'd had really successful legal careers and they were talking about kind of the having it all idea. And one of the questions posed the panel was, tell us about the mentors in your life and how you found those. And one, actually, I think most, one of the speakers was really adamant. She's like, formal mentoring programs, like they're a waste of time. They don't work. You just have to informally go to those who you're working with and and build that relationship. And everyone was agreeing. And I thought that was interesting because I actually have signed up for a couple like formal mentoring programs in my life. Say, and you've I, really enjoyed those. And I have had a lot of success where here in Colorado, the Colorado Supreme Court has a lawyer mentoring program. And even even though I was like well into my career, like over a decade in when I was changing practices areas and starting my own firm, um, I signed up for this mentoring program to be mentored. And I have loved it. I mean, maybe I just got lucky, but my mentor has been an incredible resource for me. So uh, so I don't think she listens to our podcast, but huge shout out for Beth Mitchell, who is an amazing estate planning attorney in Colorado. So if you ever need that or a great mentor, you can't have her because she's mine, but for estate planning. <laughs> no, so I've been really lucky. Um, but leads us into this, uh, to this interview and where- I have to full out disclose before we go into this interview that I was not physically present for it. I mean, I was physically present for it, um, but people will notice that my voice is missing. Uh, I did have a tech issue, so. I, I was not actually. It's not just that you're shy. No. So I, I really did have a tech issue. <laughs> so Great. But, well, but that said, you know, Ellen had an incredible interview. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, without further ado, stay tuned. Welcome, Christina Ewalt, to the show. Thank you for joining us on our podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Christina, I'm excited to dive into your your story and all your words of wisdom. Do you want to start by giving us a little bit of background of um, where you live and what you do, and then what brought you to this world of surrogacy? Sure. Um, so, I currently live in the North Denver metro area. Um, I've lived in Colorado since I was about three, um, so I consider Colorado very much my home. Um, lucky to be in a surrogacy-friendly state, and got started with uh, surrogacy about six years ago. Um, I've done that three times and all very successful, very different relationships with the families. And I'm happy to share that story with you today. Great. Thank you. Uh, So I know this, but if you want to share, what made you first think about being a surrogate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, My best friend, who I met when I was in college, 
Um, she and her husband were struggling with fertility, and she um, had undiagnosed fertility for a little while, worked with several fertility clinics, and ultimately, after several tests, was diagnosed with um, premature ovarian failure. And they told her that she would not be able to carry using her own eggs, and several of the fertility clinics told her that she would never be able to carry um, oh, wow. because she had an inhospitable uterus because of her hormone levels. Oh, and such terrible was, language to hear that inhospitable uterus. Oh. I know. Yeah, she was obviously devastated. And um, I want to say she worked with three or four different fertility clinics before she found one that said, we think we can help you. Oh, wow. Um, and as part of that conversation, I said, if you can find an egg donor, I will happily be your surrogate. And wow. so um, she was working with a fertility clinic. They found an egg donor. And that fertility clinic was able to change her protocol um, using a, some new process that they thought she might be able to try carrying a couple of embryos herself um, because they were able to adjust her hormones enough to be able to do so. And by an insane miracle. She was able to carry twins successfully through to full-time pregnancy. Wow. Well, we, yeah. try, we try never to use names of organizations when we're saying things that aren't the most positive, but for something so positive that they were able to, to help this miracle. Do you, do you want to say who that was? Sure. Um, <laughs> she worked with Conceptions um, and absolutely loved the doctors up there. Oh, go Conceptions. That's great. That's amazing. So you didn't need to carry for your best friend. No. Um, and I found myself a little bit sad that I wasn't going to get to do it. And I thought, <laughs> if not for her, why not for somebody else? And so I did a little bit of research and found out that it's actually a thing that there are agencies who specialize in matching women who want to carry as gestational surrogates to yeah. intended parents who are looking for surrogates. And um, I, I found one um, that I wanted to work with. I thought they sounded like they were very organized and on top of it and that they had a good matching process. And so I started that journey. It took way longer than I ever thought it was going to. I think whenever you start a, a new journey or some new process in your life, um, we're so adept at expecting instantaneous results or something yeah. to happen immediately. So and how so, long was that? Uh, so I, I submitted my application in February of 2013. I was not then matched until October of that year. And then we didn't do a transfer until June of 2014. Oh, so over a year till. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, and so what, I mean, how, so many questions. How did your family react when you said, hey, I want to be pregnant with someone else's child? Um, my husband thought I was legit crazy. My <laughs> mother-in-law said, you are not giving away my grandbabies. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and how did so, that conversation go of educating you her? Know, yeah, I think there's um, a bit of education that had to happen. I think even today, there's still a lot of misconception around what surrogacy is, yeah, particularly gestational surrogacy, and that people have a tough time separating the two from traditional surrogacy to gestational surrogacy. And once you're able to articulate that and explain that you're just the host, you're just helping to carry this baby that is has zero genetic tie to you or your your spouse, um, and that you're you're doing this using their genetic material, um, then people go, oh yeah, God bless, go ahead. <laughs> so, did your mother-in-law think that it was her son's genetics that would be this this child you're carrying? Not her son's, but she thought it was going to be mine. Okay. Hmm. And um, how did she feel once you explained it to her? Did she really, did she quickly come around or was it still some hesitation? No, she immediately came around and was super supportive. And um, as a matter of fact, she got to meet the couple who I was going to carry for. Um, they came out to visit for um a family vacation uh, before we did the transfer. And um, it was really great for everybody to kind of meet and be able to put faces with names. And um, even for my two boys who were 18 months and three at the time um, that we had matched with this couple, it became really easy to have the conversation with them and say, mommy's going to carry a baby for Deb and Tom. Um, and this isn't your little brother or your little sister. We're going to help create a family for somebody else. And it, 
there was never a question in their mind about were we going to bring the baby home or was it their sibling or was mommy having to give the baby up or anything like that. It would just uh, be able to put those names with those faces and start to create those relationships and how they're connected um, made those conversations actually much easier. Yeah. And did your boys meet the baby? Did they, how did they react meeting the baby? They did. So we would FaceTime every week with the parents. Uh, my boys would actually help to take pictures of my bump as it was growing. Uh, we put together a postcards from the bump scrapbook and I would journal. Um, postcards to from the bump? That is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> so I would journal to the parents as if from the baby's perspective. Um, and we would include funny anecdotes about the noises that the baby would hear from our dogs who mm. would play in the house or from the conversations that my 18-month-old and my three-year-old were having. Um, and so it was just kind of a fun way to include them in the process. And they would include drawings about the baby. And when the parents were talking about what to name the baby, we were all providing ideas. And of course, my boys like to contribute as well. And they were like, oh, the baby should be named Buttercup or Tinfoil or, you know, those funny things that kids come up with. Um, and so that helped to deepen the relationship with the parents too. Of course, they were never going to name the baby that. Uh, probably oh. nothing that we suggested. Little um, Tinfoil, no? A little Tinfoil, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but all still fun in building those relationships and helping to support the parents and make them feel like we were creating this just incredible welcoming world for them to welcome their baby into, um, even if we only get to be a part of it for a short while. Yeah. And how did that pregnancy go? Um, that one was perfect. I joke that um, I do pregnancy really well. Um, it is like a textbook. You could literally teach it in a classroom for how easy my pregnancies were. Wow. Um, I carried full term right up to 40 weeks, delivered on my due date with nearly all of my <laughs> Really pregnancies. textbook on the due date. Wow. Yeah. I'm a project manager by trade, and so I always say that my entire life is planned, including when I deliver my babies. <laughs> Very impressive. Uh, and do you still keep in touch with, with your intended parents, or with that first set, for example? Uh, we do. Um, we probably talk to them the least of the three families, um, and I don't think that's um, intentional or unintentional, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, it just is kind of the way that it worked out. She is an attorney and he is a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and they're just very, very busy. Um, but we do still make a point to connect via text message um, or FaceTime probably every two to three months. Um, and we did fly out there to see them when uh, we call him Baby Sean, even though he's five now, uh, mm -hmm. when Baby Sean was six months old and we got to spend some time with the family uh -huh. and see him with his family um, in their kind wow. of own environment. And that was really wonderful. But we've not been back to visit them. Um, but we do love keeping in touch and getting photos and we send Christmas gifts and um, really look forward to those exchanges throughout the year. Well, that one will be baby tinfoil for me forever. So <laughs> you graduate. It's a good name. Maybe I'll catch on as a middle name. <laughs> so how did it, how did you decide to do it again? Where did you have some time pass or was it immediate? So I was actually in the hospital, um, having just delivered baby Sean and reminiscing about what an incredible experience it was. There is nothing like the feeling or the heart-swelling emotion that comes with seeing a parent meet their baby for the first time. And yeah. it's not very often that you have the opportunity to witness that. And especially to be the one who is giving them that opportunity. And so I was just on cloud nine. I was so happy for them. Um, we were just down the hall from each other and I was pumping breast milk and taking it down. And I just had this epiphany in the hospital right after delivery that mm -hmm. I wanted to do this again and really give this gift to another couple. Wow. And Did you ask them? Do you say, oh, do you want a second one already? Or how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew that they were done just based on some of our conversations. They were yeah. a little bit older um, in their in their 40s. And so they were not interested in a, in a second um, baby. Mm -hmm. um, and that was okay. Um, so ultimately I decided that I wanted to match and I had learned a lot of things along the way from that first match. We had a beautiful relationship. Like I said, we talked 
every single week. There was nothing that we couldn't discuss. Um, it was a very, very healthy dialogue, very healthy relationship. And, and we love having that ongoing relationship. And I wanted to replicate that. Um, and being a surrogate who sat in other um, other meetings with other surrogates, support groups, and hearing that those aren't always the types of matches that you get. I wanted to be very diligent about asking for the type of match that I wanted. The first time I went in, I just said, yeah, I'll match with anybody. It doesn't matter. No big deal. Um, and then having done it once and having had that really great relationship with a couple who's um, not local to me because they lived in Arizona, mm -hmm. um, but local enough that they could fly out for some of the appointments, that they could be there for the delivery, um, that we could fly out and see them over a long weekend when the baby was six months old um, was something that was really, really important to me. And so I wrote all of that down on paper. And when I yeah. moved and switched agencies, um, that was one of the things I said. I said, I, I want somebody who wants a long-term ongoing relationship where this is not a secret that we are very open and honest yeah. and we will continue to be with our children as our children grow up that mm -hmm. um you know surrogates will oftentimes will joke that their kids um and the surrogate babies that they have carried are roommates and so <laughs> we want our we want our roommates to be like cousins even though there's uh, no blood relation roommates. we want them to have that kind of familial bond um, the way that cousins do and that we yeah. celebrate the birthdays and the Christmases and the bat mitzvahs and graduation and all of those big life events that um, that we want to have and um, to be happy about in our lives. Yeah. And was your second agency supportive and open to that? They were. They were very open to that. Um, and so that match actually happened much more quickly um, uh -huh. and on the flip side I was not prepared for how quick that one was going to happen given how long the first one took mm -hmm. so I had sent in my paperwork in September was matched in October and we did a transfer in January um, and so the time between the, the first surrogate baby delivery and the time that we transferred the second surrogate baby um, was just eight months it happened very very fast oh wow that is fast and was it everything, the, the second couple was everything you asked for? They were. Um, they lived in California, so they were domestic. Um, I had originally wanted a very local couple, so somebody in the Denver metro area, but I was open as long as they were willing to, um, again, travel for those appointments, be here for the delivery, that we could have that open dialogue, etc. Um, I remember when I first met the parents, they said, we are not, um, we're not super... I can't think of the word. Um, sentimental. Oh, we're not super sentimental. And so I thought, well, there goes the postcard from the book idea. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and it was we true. Were, it was true. Um, yeah. We were actually able to form a, a relationship and uh, we talked probably even more. I mean, every week we were on the phone probably four to five times per week, whether we were texting or on the phone, like phone call, doing FaceTime, um, wow. et cetera. And then they did come out to visit several times throughout the pregnancy as well. Every opportunity they, that they got to come out and see the baby for the 20 week ultrasound and 12 week ultrasound, they took advantage of those opportunities because it wasn't too long of a flight to come from California and they have flexibility with their work schedules to be able to accommodate that. Yeah. And they're probably of all three families, the one that we are the closest with. We visit them at least once a year in California and they come out and visit us um, periodically here in Denver as well. And our kids are great friends. They can't wait to talk to each other. We FaceTime all the time. We're text messaging and yeah. um, same thing, exchanging the birthday and Christmas and all mm -hmm. of those amazing amazing things that go with a, a deep relationship and we are just so blessed to have them in our life. Wow. So third one, same thing. Was Did you know immediately that you want to go again? No. As a matter of fact, I thought I was done. Surrogate doors are closed. We closed for shop. Um, can I, can I ask how, had, how old were you at this point? Oh, I was 35. Okay. So yeah, I delivered Malu in 2015. Nice. Okay. So done. 
but done. Yep. So I got a new job. I was going to pour my life into um, a new role. I had a team of 30 people that I was managing and I thought, okay, this is my new, my new thing that I'm going to conquer. And about six months later, after I had delivered, I'm hard into this new, uh, this new job and managing this team. And um, I got this feeling that I wanted to do a surrogacy again. And I thought, this is silly. Nobody does this three times. I would legitimately be crazy <laughs> if I did this again. And so I kind of shrugged off the feelings. And my husband, every time I was like, no, I'm just going to, I'm going to let this pass. He's like, good. Nobody does this three times. And so every month that passed, that feeling just kept growing stronger and stronger. And I just kept feeling this tug on my heart that I was meant to do this for another family. And fast forward 18 months, it finally reached a a cresting point. And I decided it's now or never. I'm getting to the point where I'm getting too old. Um, I need to do this if I'm going to do it. And we'll just kind of see where it goes. And yeah. so I contacted the same agency that I had worked with, with the second baby, and they welcomed me back with open arms and said, we have a match for you. <laughs> uh, so with that one, it was with a single dad who had started the process about five years prior. Um, he was traveling and wanted to make sure that he had preserved his fertility in a meaningful way, um, was waiting for Mrs. Wright to come along and it didn't happen. And he, he said, I'm, we're going to, we're going to make this happen. Um, and I remember meeting him and doing about a 90 minute Skype video interview and just falling in love with his story and something about how passionate he was to become a dad. Um, outside of like the traditional means, it just really resonated with me. I tend to be very goal oriented. And when I set my mind to something, I'm like, I'm going to do this and nothing is getting in my way. Um, and that just really spoke to my heartstrings. And I, I remember walking out of that, uh, that interview feeling like this is such a great match. And I really hope he feels the same way. And he did. He actually contacted the agency right after that. And he was like, let's lock up this deal, whatever we need to do. Let's make it happen. <laughs> That's great. Um, and when you went in thinking um, who, what kind of intended parents or intended parents you want to match with, had you said that you were open to singles or couples? Did you have preconceived notions about that? You know, I did. I said that I was willing to carry for any type of couple. That didn't matter to me. Uh, but it never occurred to me that they would actually be a single dad who would want a circuit to carry for them it just uh, for whatever reason it was not in the realm of my like perception around who would ask for a surrogate and so it was kind of an eye-opening experience to go through because normally you have um, at least the first two couples that I worked with they were male female they had been married um, and struggled with fertility for one reason or another um, and it was an amazing experience to be able to do this for a guy and interesting in the same regard because he has no idea he is an only child he never grew up with sisters he wasn't married he's never been through a pregnancy before so when you start to get into the nits and nats and details (laughs) of what it means to do a transfer and i'm counting my cycle and here's the number of days that i had my period and here's where i'm going to inject this particular medication (laughs) um i was like how much detail do you want and he was like i want it all and i said no like really how much do you want because here's what this means (laughs) Um, and he was super great. So, so sweet. And I said, I need you to, to tell me when you're ready to cry uncle. And when we've kind of crossed a boundary with too much information, because he's very highly analytical. Um, he's a strong businessman. And so he was like the more data and the more um, data driven analytics that I have to make decisions, the better. And the more detail you can give me around the surrogacy, the more comfortable I'm going to feel that everything's going okay. And so I tend to be the same type of personality where I want to overshare detail. I want to make sure that you have no questions, no concerns, that there's been nothing, no stone unturned. Um, And 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 what, what details may have kind of surprised him the most? Like, the shots in the butt or the leakiness? <laughs> I think, yeah. So when we talked about, like, when we were counting the cycle days as you're preparing yes. for a transfer and you're like, okay, so here are the days that I had my period. It was three days. And this is like the thickness of my uterine lining and 
Um, this is the type of mucus that I'm experiencing. <laughs> ah, the type of mucus. <laughs> I mean, those get to be pretty hairy details for most men and they go, Ooh, I don't want to know that, but he yeah. did. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and so how did that, how did that pregnancy go? Um, so that one was also textbook. It was really great until it wasn't. Um, oh. I, wasn't feeling well over Memorial Day weekend. At that point, I was getting ready to go into my 32nd week of pregnancy. And I had an appointment on Tuesday um, with my OB for my 32-week checkup. And I, pregnancy in the summer, especially being that far along, um, is or swelling in pregnancy is, is pretty normal. Um, but I was swelling, like my face was swelling, my fingers were swollen. Um, I was just swelling in a different way that I never had before that I, I wasn't sure I could attribute to the heat. And I was also feeling a little bit dizzy. And so I didn't make too much of it. I went to work on Tuesday knowing that I had an appointment at four o'clock that afternoon. And when I got there, they told me that the doctor got called into surgery and wasn't going to be able to see me. And something in my intuition said, you need to be seen. Um, do yeah. not leave. And Good so for you. I'm, I'm and they would have, they would have, they would have just let you leave. As they they totally would have just let me leave. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm lucky that I had become friends with one of the OBs in the practice and I texted her and I said, Hey, I'm supposed to have an appointment today. I'm not feeling great. And I said, but they're telling me that there's no doctor who can see me. And I said, what should I do? And she said, Oh, I'm actually still here in the office. Um, I will let oh. them know that I will see you. Wow. And so yeah, which was great. So even though she was supposed to be leaving, she um, cleared her docket, had me go into an exam room. She came in and she's looking at my chart and she said, well, your blood pressure looks fine. Um, I'm going to have him retake it with a different cuff. And in the meantime, let's see what the results of your, your analysis were. And so she comes back in, she checks my blood pressure and she's like, yikes, your blood pressure. Um, I'm thinking that blood pressure cuff is off because um, your blood pressure is really high. Wow. And this is the wrong, she, the wrong cuff. And it looked, it looked okay. It looked normal. Yeah. It looked totally normal. And then she came in with a urinalysis then, and she said, you need to call your husband. You are going to have this baby probably tonight or tomorrow. And she said, we're going to admit you to labor and delivery because you are afraid of going sick. And I had no idea what that meant. I mean, this was my fifth pregnancy. I had never had any issues. Yeah. I always, you know, took the urinalysis just like you're supposed to, but I never really thought about what that meant or what the implications of it were. Mm. And so now reality has hit. I cannot go home. I can't even go pick up my boys from daycare. I need, or from school. Mm -hmm. I need to call my husband. Our whole life is going to shift. And by the way, how do I tell the parents this? That I am the person who is responsible for keeping their baby safe and warm and healthy and fed Mm -hmm. until he's ready to be delivered into this world. And I have just failed. Oh, no. Yeah, that's a lot to to take on. So I went over to labor and delivery, and they're starting a detailed urinalysis where they make you pee for 24 hours, and they're collecting it, and they're analyzing it, and they're doing blood tests to see how your white blood count is going, and whether your kidneys are still functioning and your liver is functioning. Um, They've got me connected to a blood pressure cuff, and they're doing ultrasounds on the baby because the risk with preeclampsia is in essence that your body starts to reject the placenta um, in the pregnancy and the placenta is what gives the baby oxygen yeah. nutrition and everything to sustain the, the baby and so once that placenta starts to detach um, the, you're at high risk for fetal demise and maternal demise very scary because of yeah so it got very, very serious, very, very quickly, and they ran every test that they could, and I just had the best possible medical care that I could have. Um, I had to call the parents. I, w- I waited to call until I knew more information. I didn't want them to panic. Mm-hmm. They were in New York, and by this point, it was already like 9 p.m. their time, mm-hmm. and I didn't want them to feel like they had to jump on an airplane if they didn't have to at that moment. Yeah. We wanted to kind of wait and see. And I kept checking in with my doctor to say, well, do you tell me when I should panic and when I should call them? 
And your doctor knew the whole situation that you were. She did. Yeah. She had actually been my doctor for the first three surrogacies. Um, I'm sorry, the first Mm -hmm. two surrogacies and was also very um, involved with this one as well. So when did you call? Yes. So uh, I waited about another hour and ended up calling them about 10 p.m. Mountain Time, um, which was midnight. And I hated to wake them up, but we felt like we had enough information. Knowing how analytical the dad was, he would want the details behind um, what I was telling him. And so I felt good about the decision. Um, Of course, emotions, both pregnancy and the fear of, gosh, I have just let them down, um, kind of started to weigh on me at that moment. And I didn't handle it super gracefully. Um, I started bawling, as a matter of fact, when I delivered the message. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to let you talk to the doctor. And I had to pass the phone to the doctor so that she could explain it um, in medical Mm -hmm. terms without the emotion behind it. Um, And he got back on the phone with me and he said, should we get on an airplane or are you okay? And I said, I am looking at the doctor and she is shaking her head. Yes, you need to come and you should come tomorrow because the baby might be here tomorrow. So they packed very, very quickly, jumped on a red eye um, and flew out. They got here the next morning um, and I was in the hospital being monitored the whole night they had me meet with the uh, perinatologist, uh, the fetal specialist, the next day to assess how critical the preeclampsia was. And it, was it not just the intended father? Did he have a family member or someone else coming with he him? He did. So, yeah, that's actually a really great question and a big important part of the story. So at the same time that we had matched um, to begin the surrogacy journey, he had also met um, the person who would become the love of his oh, life literally that same wow, month. Wow, that's so funny. <laughs> that's always like a good um, first date. Like, are you, do you have kids? Well, one in progress. Yeah. <laughs> one coming. On their second date, he told her about the surrogacy. Wow. <laughs> and he basically said, like, there is no going backwards. I'm continuing forward with of this. Course. And if you're on board, let's do this. If you're not, totally understand. Yeah. Um, and they're actually getting married in December. Um, so that's, yeah, amazing. That's amazing. Oh, and how old will the baby be? So Ethan just turned one in June and we were actually out in New York. Uh, We flew out as a family and got to celebrate his first birthday with him and all of their um, other family and friends. That's so sweet. Um, Okay. So did the baby come that next day and were they there? He he did not come the next day. They got there, I want to say about 10 or 11 a.m. By that point, um, I was ready to meet with a perinatologist who was going to assess how um, my body was reacting, how baby is reacting, um, whether the placenta still looked like it was good and healthy. And our goal was to try and keep the baby in every day that we possibly could up until 34 weeks. So at this point, I was just shy of 32 or right at 32 and 32 in two days. Um, And so they said, as long as you're tolerating the preeclampsia and as long as baby is tolerating the preeclampsia, we will let you to continue to carry on a hospital bed rest. Oh. And so I had round the clock hair. They were constantly poking, cutting, taking every possible test that they yeah. could to make sure that we were both tolerating well. And um, at one point, my blood pressure was not controlled despite two major blood pressure medications. I was on magnesium um, to control um, some of the risk of seizure and stroke that comes with such high blood pressure and my organs started to shut down oh. and they said, you need to deliver this baby now, right. which is really the only cure for preeclampsia. Yeah. And so, and so were they, they in the hospital and, at the time or they were like, this is happening right now? The parents, yes. so the parents were kind of coming and going. They were staying at a hotel um, and I, we were just in constant um, contact via text message or phone calls. Yeah. And I just said, you guys need to go and live your life. Um, it's very much like living in a fishbowl when you are a surrogate delivering in the hospital under normal circumstances. Right. But if there's any complication either, and everybody's just sitting there <laughs> watching you. Like, about what's Hi guys. That gets to be a little bit intense. Did they make it? Were they able to be in the delivery room? Cause it was, it would have been an operating room at that point. Is that right? It was an operating room. Yeah. So fast forward, I made it an extra six days with baby. 
I'm not tolerating it well. Baby is not tolerating it well. I started to actually hemorrhage. Um, and so they put me into emergency surgery. The dad was actually in the room when they came in um, after the second like hemorrhage that I had. And the doctor said, okay, we're going to have baby now. And he threw, or she threw scrubs at the dad, threw scrubs at my husband. And they were like, well, let's go. Oh. We are going to be. And so they were both days. allowed in the OR. Cause I know this is often an issue. This they, is like, if only one person can be in the room, who gets to be there? Yeah. We talked about all of that as part of our pre-birth plan. And ultimately it's not even most of the time up to the doctor. It's most of the time up to the anesthesiologist who will determine who is allowed in the room. And I, I think everybody in the hospital, all the nurses, the staff, the everybody who was on, on call um, knew what the situation was, um, that I was a surrogate, that my husband was not the dad, that there was real dad there, there was a future mom there, there's all of these people at play. And they were super gracious about allowing my husband in to be my support person, which was really important because I was kind of an emotional wreck at that point. Right. Fair enough. Your, um, your organs then, are shutting down. So yeah, I want your person there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then dad was allowed in the room and um, I will never forget getting wheeled into the room and I'm super scared about like, what is the outcome of this going to be? Because this is um, very critical for both of us and thinking through every possible worst case, uh, what are the different scenarios? And I tend to like to diffuse situations yeah. with humor. Mm -hmm. And I'm also pretty drugged up at this point. <laughs> and I remember them moving me onto the bed and they put up the sheet and they're getting ready to start the surgery. And I turned and looked at my husband and I said, am I naked? And he said, yep. And I said, totally naked. And he goes, yep. And I go, well, Jason, this is what a real woman's body looks like. Oh. <laughs> Uh, nice. And how did he laugh? He did. He laughed. It had the intended effect. Yeah. Everybody kind of got a good chuckle. Um, and so they proceeded with the C-section. Baby came out. He got to go with him over to the NICU um, and be with him while I was in recovery and dealing with all of the aftermath of an emergency C-section. Um, baby was in the hospital for five weeks in the NICU. And they had a really great NICU set up up at Boulder Foothills, where there are actually room and suites for the parents attached to each individual NICU unit. Oh, nice. So it is a parent suite to an individual room for the baby, which I think was very, very comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and the dad was taking turns going back and forth between the Airbnb and the hospital, spending as much time with, um, with babies as he could. Um, Amanda was doing the same. I went in, I tried to pump for them. I had done that for the first two surrogate babies and it was something that I was really um, looking forward to doing. It was really important to me, but I think because of all the trauma mm. from the preeclampsia and the emergency C-section and everything else, my body just was like, we are done. Wow. There is nothing coming. Yeah. Um, and so despite not being able to pump, I still went and saw Ethan uh, two to three times a week and checked in with them. We went on some double dates with Ian and Amanda, uh, which was really great to get outside the hospital and um, let them kind of experience life um, outside of of the Nikki room, um, but created just a beautiful, beautiful relationship again with, with their family and um, something that we absolutely um, adore having yeah. today. That's amazing. Well, I can say the reason we became connected is because I um, have someone close to me who is a gestational carrier who said you were their mentor and the person they really looked to for advice. I would love if you'd be willing to share some of that top advice that most you know people thinking about gestational surrogacy might be asking you or might surprise them. What do you think is the most kind of the most important tips to to give to someone who might be thinking about going through this process for someone else? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I think um, my biggest piece of advice for anybody who wants to become either a gestational surrogate or as an intended parent looking for a surrogate is to not underestimate the importance of that surrogate match and that connection and making sure that you are truly taking the time to vet out, answer those questions honestly about 
each of the different major components that you will more than likely come up upon throughout the surrogacy journey. Um, things like how are we going to handle legal? What type of food do you want me to eat? Do you want to be in the delivery room or do you not want to be in the delivery room? Do you want me to pump? Do you not want me to pump? Those are pretty easy questions to answer. Other questions that get harder are things like under what circumstances would I be willing to terminate a baby? And my answer for whether I would terminate my own child versus would I be willing to terminate a surrogate baby for a parent because I have no right to this baby, those answers can sometimes be different. And you have to get very crystal clear about what those answers are so that it doesn't blow up and become a situation that you were not prepared for early on in the relationship. Some of the other advice that I would give beyond that match um, are making sure that you are forging a relationship in a way that you can have open, honest dialogue. You have some of those paramount challenging questions because things are going to come up. And I'll give you an example. With the second surrogate family, who we have probably the closest relationship to, at one point during the pregnancy, I felt like I was just kind of being a little bit smothered. And he and I have had many conversations about oh, this. Then. Yeah. Um, and at one point I had to call him and say, Mark, I love you. But when you call me and you ask me the 15 things that could possibly go wrong with this upcoming appointment or this upcoming milestone, I feel like I have to be your cheerleader. And it's exhausting. And I want to be able to do that for you, but I can't do it every week or every two yeah. weeks or however well, long. Well, way to be honest and, said, and so, open about your feelings. That's great. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I think that so many matches that go awry could be saved or salvaged if people feel like they can have those open conversations yes. without hurting each other's feelings. I, I think so. I've definitely heard the other way too, where a gestational carrier feels like, you know, I, I rarely hear from them. Like, I, do they care? Like, I don't, I wish they had more contact. And I think the other side is thinking like, I don't want to be intrusive in her life. You know, we're checking in, but we just want to like respect her privacy. And while they don't know that maybe she's really wishing that they were more involved and more, you know, checking in more often. Yeah, absolutely. I think I actually had that same exact experience with the third um, surrogacy with the dad where because I had had two relationships that were, we talked several times a week and they wanted to know about my kids and I wanted to know about their lives and there was all this stuff. With, um, with the last one, I actually had to have that conversation and say, hey, I don't know how we can start to, to form more of a relationship, but this is something that is really important to me. Um, and I had to be mindful of the fact that he was a single guy and that this is probably something that doesn't come naturally. Um, and so we were able to find a happy medium, but it did require that crucial conversation to say, how do we meet in the middle on this and make sure that both of our needs are being met. Yeah. So you probably are well aware that in much of the world, surrogacy is not legal and not permitted, or at the very least compensated surrogacy is not permitted. What do you say in response to that? Or even have you had people kind of challenge you on like the ethics of what you're doing? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the the biggest um, questions that you get from people. Mm -hmm. And in no other situation would you meet somebody for the first time and say, how much money do you make doing project management? <laughs> right. Um, or being a psychiatrist or whatever. Yes. But everybody feels this wow. burning question and need to say, how much do you get compensated for doing that? Um, and so my reaction is always, well, I don't consider it compensation, number one. It is like pre-birth child support. So I've agreed to carry for this, this couple. The money to me is never enough to justify. If you took the amount of time from the time that you match until the time that you deliver or finish pumping or whatever that journey is, and you divided it into an hourly wage, nobody does it for the money. You are putting your self, your body, your health, your family, everything in your life changes for that period of time in support of helping this other family have the family that they want. And you make a lot of sacrifices in doing that. And so the compensation does help surrogates to do things like go back to school. I know many surrogates who have done that. They've gone back to become um, OB nurses or fertility um, nurses, because they have such a passion for this field. They 
use it as a down payment for their first home to really change the life of their family. They use it to take a vacation that never in a million years would they normally um, be able to justify doing. Um, they invest it in other charity work. They launch their own business. They do all kinds of things that kind of pay it forward in a way, um, simultaneous to helping this family achieve their dreams. And I think there's just something really beautiful about that um, that compensation, if that's what you want to call it, or that free birth child support that allows another family to do something amazing in the world that they wouldn't normally have the opportunity where you're helping another family to realize an opportunity that wouldn't be possible without the surrogate. Right. Partner. That's kind yeah. of how I look at it. Um, kind of a, a long, like a sub point of that, that fear about surrogacy um, and some of the criticism about it is you know, often gestational carriers may or may not really understand the risk involved um, that you, of course, can die during during pregnancy. And even with your own story that you were an organ failure, do you what did you do yourself to research the risk and what do you recommend for others thinking about to really, really understand kind of the impact it could have both on your life and the risk that you take as well as that risk to your family? Yeah, that's a really good question and something that I I, I think most surrogates um, are underprepared for. Um, even as analytical and goal-oriented as I tend to be, and I want to gobble up as much information um, about things before I enter into them as I possibly can, I will say the first time that I was a surrogate, I didn't do any of that research. You kind of hear stories about, um, like, fetal demise and maternal demise and what are the statistics around that, but you always think, that won't happen to me. Um, and then when you sit in support group and you start to hear some of these stories, for every like 100 great success stories, there is going to be one that is pretty critical, whether it is a pulmonary embolism caused from some of the medication, whether it is um, critical preeclampsia that puts your life and the baby's life at risk, um, whether it is some other issue that comes up in the pregnancy, there is a better than normal chance because of IVF and the medications that you're on that something could go wrong and you do have to be prepared for it. Um, I think there's a balance there though too. You can research things to death and become so scared that you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't have the appetite for it. Um, and then you kind of lost your way as far as I'm doing this for the greater good. Um, and so I would say find the balance. Know enough that you can kind of um, eyes wide open, make important decisions or um, change the way that you would do things or um, better monitor your health throughout the process to make sure that, that, that you're mitigating the risk around some of those. But there's always still a very, very small chance that something is going to go wrong and you definitely have to prepare yourself for that and prepare your family for it. Um, and some of that is done naturally through the surrogate contracting process where you do take out a life insurance policy in the event that something could happen. I don't know what the statistics are um, for surrogates. You might know that better than I do, but I don't know that there's ever been a surrogate who has died as a result of surrogacy. I think there has. Unfortunately, I think right? there has. I think, I think that you're right that the statistics are very low, but I will say for, for our, fellow, our loyal listeners, we do have an episode where we had the surrogacy insurance expert come on and talking about life insurance and health insurance and newborn insurance. And sure enough, she did say there was a situation, at least one, if not two, maybe, um, where a surrogate had passed away, um, you know, quite tragically. So, you know, there's, there's a real risk that in anything that things can go wrong. And you, as a surrogate, you have to weigh that. I mean, even taking the opportunity to drive to work five days a week, um, 30 miles from my yes. house, I am accepting the risk right. that I could get into a fatal car accident. And I have to decide, is providing for my family um, more important than the, the small possibility that something could happen? Um, and I make those decisions yes, every day. I, I, I appreciate your driving analogy. I just, uh, I think I was talking to a reporter who I didn't realize who was so anti-surrogacy. And she said, you know, women are risking their lives. They don't even understand it. You know, they shouldn't be allowed to put their lives at risk. And I was like, well, we're allowed to drive and we do put our lives at risk there. So 
I, I always appreciate that analogy. Um, and that's okay. Not everybody has to understand or respect the decision that I made for me and for my family and for the couples that um, I hope to create this gift for. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story slash stories, as well as your advice. Do you consider yourself continually available to, to people who are thinking about doing this or have questions? Um, and if so, how do how do they reach you if that is something that you're, you're open to? Yeah, absolutely. Surrogacy is something that I am wildly passionate about, um, and I love to talk about it. I love to educate people and lead support groups for other surrogates. Um, if there's intended parents who, who have questions or future intended parents, anybody who wants to know information, they're welcome to reach out to me um, at christinaebel at gmail.com. And I'd be happy. And we'll link to it on the website as well. So we'll have it in writing. So if you didn't catch that right away, you can still look it up. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christina. I re- we really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, this has been a pleasure to talk to you guys. And um, I hope that I was able to provide some useful information and that my, my story helps other people. Well, thank you for sharing all your expertise and for being a great resource and mentor to others. Just a huge shout out to all those who take their experiences and really um, feel like they can contribute to others who are just starting that path. So it's so meaningful for those, for everyone else. So thank you to, to Christina and for those who also walk that path. And, and speaking of shouting out, because, you know, I, I like to make my total transitions here, <laughs> my, my dad joke version of transitions. Uh, we love it when people shout out to us. Uh, please do feel free always to give us a call on our hotline at 303-997-1903. Uh, we, we do try to get back in touch with people. And if possible, we will put, you know, if there's something that is relevant or cool, we'll put it on here if we can. Um, but also feel free, you can email us, you can find ways to reach us, uh, Twitter, leave us an iTunes review anyway, we love to hear and hear feedback from people. So please, please um, g- give us a shout out. Uh, and as always, always huge shout out and thank you to everybody on our team who makes us sound and feel like we are like rock stars on top of the world. Um, Chris at Worker Bird Studios, Lexi, uh, Amanda in our office, Ashley in our office, everybody who really takes great care of us and helps Tyler, so that we who, to take great care of you. Oh, and Tyler, Tyler, of course. See, I forget Tyler every <laughs> time. Tyler. Sorry, Tyler. Love you, Tyler. <laughs> right? But thank you to everybody who listens and we really appreciate having you along. So we'll talk to you next week. Bye.